Hey, this is Lara, and you're listening to The Slavic Connection. Today we had Dr. Craig Campbell on the episode. He's an associate professor in the Department of Anthropology and the assistant director of CREASE here at UT Austin. We talked a little bit about his research in visual, intermedia, and sensory ethnography. We defined Anthropocene, and we talked a little bit about why time is profoundly weird. Take a listen. Slavic Connection, brought to you by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Dr. Campbell, welcome to the Slavic Connection. We're happy to have you here. Thank you. Thank you. So let's let's get right into this. We are very excited to discuss a little bit of your research today um, on the UT website. It says that your research interests are visual, intermediate, and sensory ethnography. Could you perhaps define that for us a little bit, what that is, how did you get into it, sort of what led you to this research topic? Yeah, sure. I think actually a useful way of talking about this is thinking about um, some of my academic trajectory, um, which is kind of how I got into visual anthropology. So out of high school, I actually went into a fine arts program in Victoria in Canada and did that for a little while and then shifted over into liberal arts. But doing that, I really had a taste for practicing visual culture of various forms, from drawing to photography, um, and was really taken with that as a as a form of knowledge production that that I liked, and it was a community that I liked. I liked the ways that people came together to produce art, um, and I liked these sort of zones, the like very indeterminate zones between documentary and uh, nonfiction, or sorry, nonfiction and fiction, or mm-hmm. documentary and fabulation, or fictioning, and all these sorts of things that they were really interested in me a lot. Um, anyway, so then I shifted more into doing anthropology, and all the way along, I was focusing on uh, things that overlapped in one way or another with visual culture, uh, and, and for the most part, it was photography. Although for a while I was doing comic book work as well, uh, so doing illustration and trying to sort of figure out how that relates to ethnography. So when I, and in Canada at the time, there wasn't really uh, any kind of visual anthropology program. Mm -hmm. Uh, So when I went into grad school, I went to a program that was, you know, conventional anthropology, cultural anthropology program, got an MA in that did some photography along the way, started doing some ethnographic research in central Siberia, and started to really think about incorporating it into my practice. And I actually found a community of visual anthropologists in the USA in the Association for American, or the American Anthropological Association, Mm -hmm. and they had a subunit called the Society for Visual Anthropology. Um, So I started reading a lot and participating as a graduate student in their organization, um, presenting at conferences, and, and really starting to socialize into that. And it was around that time I also started to realize that there was a lot of really good conversation happening around the limits of the idea of the visual. Sure. First of all, the visual, you know, is... Uh, sort of a facile recognition of a boundary that, that's not very useful because we're constantly talking about other sensory phenomena as well. Um, I mean, it really emerged out of technical concerns. Um, so it was adequate to describe people who were, you know, doing primarily work with photography or film. But even film, because everyone was shooting with sound, was also 
auditory, right? So, yeah. there, I mean, sound was involved in that. Um, and so ever since I've been involved in it, there's people who've been sort of pushing back against this idea that, you know, the visual is adequate. And f- other people who've been pushing even harder saying, you know what, e- by sort of maintaining this idea of visual anthropology, we are undermining our ability to really attend to the, the both theory and the practice of, of other sensory modalities. Um, and so that's why I, I, I sort of moved between the two of them. There's a term that's kind of emerged recently, which is called multimodal anthropology. I'm sympathetic to it. I'm, I'm not completely enamored with the language of that, but that's, that's, I think, the most coherent and sustained attempt to get beyond the visual as, as the sort of singular modality of working. I'm, I'm a little bit more excited by the idea of sensory anthropology, and it allows us as anthropologists, as researchers, to be able to move between different modes in response to worlds that we're trying to theorize and describe. So yeah, so that's that's kind of like a long way around of explaining what I mean by the visual and the sensory. I can't remember what was there was a third term in there too. I forget. Intermedia. Oh, intermedia. <laughs> well, actually, I mean, so that's an interesting one. I can say a few words about that if yeah, you want. Um, so the notion of intermedia kind of came out, um, as far as I understand, with uh, the Fluxus artists. Uh, they really promoted this sense of intermedia as. Uh, refusal of sort of modernist categorizations mm-hmm. of art practice, and they were really interested in being able to move between different kinds of art production, and uh, performance was really central to that, uh, as were a number of other concerns. And there's lots of people who've written about this. Well, actually, I shouldn't say lots. There are people who've written about this. <laughs> uh, for my part, I, I sort of picked that up actually in grad school as a way of naming this zone that I was interested in. Uh, it was a, a media practice that wasn't attempting to be any one thing. Uh, it was trying to be agnostic uh, and uh, develop techniques and tools that were responsive to the worlds that we encounter in doing our research rather than the other way around. At the same time, it's very it's a little bit anxious as a practice as well that is recognizing its limits. Um, you know, if you want to be a filmmaker, there's a huge amount of work to be done in skills building, mm-hmm. in uh, developing an eye, in developing a sense of how to mediate relationships, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a danger in trying to do, potentially do everything, right? Um, and so there's a recognition of, of differences between the amateur and the professional. Um, but one of the nice things about uh, the sort of new media production landscape we're in is if you embrace the identity of the amateur and embrace the identity of a kind of DIY punk aesthetics, you can kind of do everything and, and you're not sort of claiming the territory of you know, conventional art practitioners you know, who have an incredible studio practice and who have developed those skills over a very long period of time of doing critiques, of doing engagements with uh, exhibition or on the other side of you know film production people, right? There's so much skill involved in doing that well. By being an amateur, you're, you're not really like eroding that territory. You can still sort of recognize the skill that's involved in making, you know, being a great cinematographer or a great director um, or whatever. And so, uh, you know, I think we can do both of those things and have both of those things exist side by side. And the fact is, I, I think amateur production that comes out of that kind of intermediate work can often really energize a lot of the professional work that often gets 
as with any sort of discipline, it can get start to get a little bit narrow in its mm-hmm. in its focus. It's one of the reasons you know you'll get Hollywood is constantly poaching um, techniques that are developed by experimental artists to bring into their productions. You know, to create a better atmosphere or more sort of tension or whatever. Well, speaking of experimental. Um you know, anthropology and ethnography, that sort of thing. I was just going to segue right into the Intermedia Workshop. Um, if what, you'd like to talk a little bit about that, specifically the Bureau for Experimental Ethnography, that was very fascinating. You were a co-founder of, you know, the space. So not only are you, you know, promoting your own research, you're also providing this sort of workshop space where others can sort of do their own work as well. Yeah. So the Intermedia Workshop came out of my, I ran a, um, I was a grad student in the University of Alberta. Uh, actually, I was in sociology at that time, finishing a PhD. And I was a student of Derek Sayer, who you might know from Czech studies, uh, who's written lots of b- books about Prague, uh, modernism, uh, surrealism, uh, and anyway, he's a great writer um, and theorist and researcher. Under Derek, I, I was able to run a lab that we called the Intermedia Research Studio. Uh, and that was when I started to develop this idea of the Intermedia. So when I came here uh, as a faculty member, I was able to, to start my own lab called the Intermedia Workshop. Mm-hmm. And that's moved around a lot. It's had space. It's not had space. It's got, had rooms. It's had computers. It's has equipment. And sort of it morphs and changes over the years. And as it's kind of like an agile concept that doesn't always have a, a relationship to geography in the world. Um, <laughs> Plays into the theme of the workshop itself. <laughs> exactly, yeah. So it allows us to move around in, in whatever sort of passions or fascinations are happening at any given moment. In the past couple of years, I've made some connections with uh, new faculty like uh, Professor uh, uh, Marina Peterson, who came in, Casey Boyle over in Rhetoric and Writing, and we recognized that we had a lot of connections and shared interests, and so it didn't make sense to sort of subsume them into my own project, the Intermedia Workshops. Instead, we decided to create this kind of coalition that we called the Bureau for Experimental Ethnography. And so under that umbrella now, a lot of different things sort of happen and operate. For the most part, it's a label for the experimental projects that we get involved in. At the moment, we've got a project called uh, Greeting Cards for the Anthropocene, which is kind of our our main focus over the next year, which is a project that's supported by Planet Texas 2050 uh, and is a collaboration between anthropology, rhetoric and writing, and design. In the past, we've done all kinds of different things from uh, inviting in filmmakers. So this last spring, we had uh, Alvaro Torres Crespo, who's doing some work in Costa Rica uh, on gold panners. And he was doing this kind of like experimental sensory ethnographic documentary kind of work. And so we find opportunities to bring people in who are committed to doing good documentary practice work that is also inspired by experimental methods, that's inspired by art practices, and that is really dedicated to trying to think about, you know, what does it mean to tell good stories? What does it mean to make good theories about how the world works? And then how to circulate and think these narratives, both within the confines of the university and the academy, and also out and beyond it as well. So is there an interdisciplinary approach to, to this lab? Is it just for anthropology students, or can anyone come in and kind of 
get in on this experiment? Yeah, so it, it's it's open. Um, at the moment, we've got a, a space that is also functions as a classroom, so it's not just sort of like a drop-in space that people can come to. The events themselves are completely open. Um, I'd say we're constitutionally uh, in, interdisciplinary. There's uh, kind of an incredulity, I think, that's shared amongst us, that is Casey and Marina and myself, about sort of disciplinary boundaries and, and the kinds of effects that those have on thinking and creativity and enthusiasm. We recognize the utility of it, of needing to know a literature, to understand a discipline and its history, but at the same time, you know, we see phenomenal work that's happening over in Complet, that's happening in photography and fine arts, that's happening in film production, that's happening in film theory. And, and so it's happening all over the place. And so, we, you know, we're really committed to sustaining a, a space where people can come together. The shared interest is the key part, right? right? So, you know, committing to experimental modes of uh, ethnographic research is, is the, sort of the key grounding frame for that. You're working on that. You're also, you mentioned the greeting cards for the Anthropocene, and you've been working a lot with that word as well. Could you first define Anthropocene? Because I had to look it up, and I, I think it's a, you know, very interesting word because, um, especially in a recent paper you wrote, there's a geological definition to it, but it's also taken on an anthropology sort of definition as well. Yeah. So um, we, we have geologists who've come up with this term. They, the geologists recognize, you know, certain sort of epochs and histories of the earth, right? Um, and they have very uh, uh, well-founded and debated upon classifications for how we recognize any new epoch. Um, and so there was a point where uh, this guy named Kreutzen and some others, I'm actually kind of forgetting the history a little bit, because I haven't told this story in a little while, so I'm forgetting some of the names, but um, they started to suggest that we've perhaps entered into a new geological age and that it needs a new name. And so this was component to recognizing that humans have become a geological force in the Earth, which is to say we're making marks on the planet that impact the planet from a very deep historical perspective. So we can pollute a river, uh, and over 100, 200, 300 years, that pollution may disappear, right? So for these geologists, that's, that's not, that can't constitute a, a sort of a new era, right? What needs to constitute a new era is this notion that, you know, you could go anywhere on the planet, on the face of the earth, pretty much, and... 100,000 years from now, a million years from now, find markers that say something major happened uh, and across the whole planet. So that, that's, that's sort of the foundation, sort of how they're coming up with this idea of the Anthropocene. Then that, of course, ties into, and it, it, as that started to emerge as, as this concept that people were like, oh, this is interesting. It you know, clearly belonged to the geological sciences, Yet, as we were reminded by uh, Bruno Latour, uh, Chakrabarti, and some others, theorists who are writing, they're saying, you know, this actually has huge implications in a whole bunch of ways. So on the one hand, to name this, to say the Anthropocene or Anthropocene, you're naming the human, right? Um, and that opens up a whole can of worms when you're naming a species as making this mark on the earth. And one of the big questions is, do we all share equal culpability 
for people who are sitting in Austin, Texas right now, enjoying air conditioning, enjoying their car, enjoying all the privileges of life in Texas in the 21st century, we bear a much, much larger degree of culpability than, say, a group of Avenki reindeer herders in central Siberia um, or, I don't know, Quechua hunters in, in the Amazon in, in Ecuador or something like that. And so, you know, one of the big interventions that anthropologists and others have made in this concept of the Anthropocene is to put kind of a restraining order on it and say, you know, we need to be a lot more careful with this term and the potential dangers it does. And so if we've learned anything through the humanities, it's to take language seriously. We basically refuse to allow the geologists to have this term without having cultural comment on it. And, you know, many geologists are quite happy to have people come in on and say, yes, you know, thank you for participating in this, because they're equally concerned that, you know, we've entered into this stage of climate change, of global warming, that uh, is going to have profound effects on all of us um, in the now, <laughs> in the near, and in the distant future. Yeah. And so, you know, the, the work with that then is, is to say, you know, well, who is the we here? Uh, how do we experience uh, the sort of unequal exposure to that kind of vulnerability? You know, again, if you're wealthy, it's easy enough to sort of pack up in your car and leave Texas and move up to Colorado or something or Washington State and get away from whatever climate crisis you're in. But there's a lot of people who are not that mobile, and you don't have to go all the way to Siberia or Ecuador to find those people. You know, there's such profound degree of inequality and poverty and uh, basically criminal negligence of, of underclass in America that uh, it's, it's right here under our very noses. So there, there's a lot of vulnerability that's not equally distributed. So that's the, that's the whole idea behind the Anthropocene and why it matters to us. Uh, Bruno Latour about 2010 maybe, not quite that long ago, 2014 said, made a presentation to the, the Association of American Anthropologists and said, you know, we've kind of been cursed with this term and gifted with this term and you we can't avoid it we have to talk about it it is absolutely central and i think he's absolutely correct well let's actually go to siberia you've been following for a while you know indigenous siberia's siberian people in remote villages and settlements um, but specifically with the Evenki that you've mentioned, you've found sort of an area that's in an interesting situation in that there's this dam that is being threatened to be built. It's been proposed twice. It's been kind of canceled twice, but it's looming and in the distance. And you've been studying them and this idea of, you know, the shadow of the dam as you've written. Uh, so how how did you find yourself, you know, studying these people? I've read a 2018 essay that you wrote about it, and you mentioned that one of the lessons you learned is that time is profoundly weird, and I would just love for you to, um, you know, expound upon that a little bit. Sure, okay. So, uh, where to start? There's a, a few parts of that. That's a multifaceted question, yeah, yeah, yeah. yes. <laughs> oh, that's great, I, I appreciate it. So the, the hydroelectric dam kind of came to my consciousness about 10 years ago, maybe. And I, I kind of heard about it. And it just seemed like another story you hear uh, in the, across the circumpolar north, some big mega project. Maybe it's going to happen. Maybe it's not. Sure. 
you know, you hear it all the time. There's, you know, some sort of mining that's going to happen. There's some sort of dam, this or that. Um, but it didn't really seem imminent. So I, I wasn't, you know, it didn't command all that much attention. Um, and I, I wasn't there at the time that they were, that the, they were doing consultations and things. Um, so when I finished some other projects, I started, I kind of came, circled back around to it a bit more and started thinking more carefully about it. And on the first level, there was an opportunity to consider a dam that had been proposed in the late Soviet era, and then a dam that had been proposed in the early post-Soviet era. And that was a very enticing comparison to make. So how do megaprojects happen uh, in, under this socialist regime? How do they happen under this new neoliberal capitalist mm-hmm. unrestrained market regime as it was emerging, you know, and it looks quite different now than it did in the, in the nineties uh, when it was proposed for the second time. So on that level it became a really enticing research object. And in doing that and starting that work, I started to realize there was actually, and collaborating with my friend uh, Anatoly Mikhailovich Ablaje, who's a member of the Russian Academy of Sciences, Siberian division in Novosibirsk. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, we started to ask this question of time and how we experience time, how humans experience time, partly out of questions of the Anthropocene. Um, and those questions were, on the one hand, how do we understand scale? Mm-hmm. Uh, how do we understand, you know, thousands of thousands of years of human history in relationship to this the very tiny moment that we're in right now that seems to be asking for very, very quick action, right? Um, so in looking at time, we started to also think about how a uh, potential catastrophe that is, you know, to build this hydroelectric dam in central Siberia would flood the Nizhna Tunguska River uh, and basically I think six or seven settlements would be completely flooded out. And so to have that, and that being the shadow, hanging over you as a person living there, whether you're indigenous of Enki, whether you are Russian, there's Germans there, there's Poles there, there's lots of folks there, but it, you know, it is a titular Evenki district, right, or municipality of Krasnarsk territory. How does that change your relationship to the future? Mm-hmm. You know, every morning you walk out of your house, take your kids to school, and knowing that that's not going to be there or may not, might not be there at any given moment. I'm interested in what sort of a coercive temporal framing that creates in everyday life. So that's the goal of the project, is to be able to do ethnography, mm-hmm. to try to understand better uh, how that works. At the moment, we've just done sort of studies of the studies and studies of uh, from afar, basically. So we're, we're really building up towards doing that kind of work. So the weirdness comes in, uh, and it, it's partly a, a sort of, I guess, a thought game in a way. Um, the older meaning of weird, if we think back to Shakespeare, we can think of like the weird sisters. Yep. Uh, we're thinking of magic, we're thinking of old European notions of magic and time and futurity uh, and, and speculation. Um, and so for me, trying to bring in weirdness is... Uh, a way of centering time and particularly how humans orient themselves towards the future and base actions and ideas on a certain sort of anticipation of outcomes. So it brings in some theory about 
uh, I mean, it leans on a lot of queer theory, for example, mm -hmm. this like refusing notions of normativity that's exploring the edges of how we build conventions in, uh, uh, in societies that are heteronormative, for example, right? And there's obviously a lot more to it than that. And of course, that owes its legacies partly to uh, feminist studies and feminist theories. And so there, there's there's a whole body of, of theory out there that's you know pushing back against the conventions of society that become tacit assumptions about how one lives life in the world and how life can be lived in the world. And so the the idea of a weird anthropology or of a weird theory is essentially to work with some of those ideas and develop them in a way that's uh, more sort of oriented towards time itself. Um, and so it's a bit of a play on queer theory uh, and trying to bring in queer theory into thinking explicitly about time um, and then trying to think about how those conversations can happen in a number of different places. So the Siberia one becomes, or the hydroelectric dam becomes an object that we can potentially work with to explore whether this is a useful concept or not. Yeah, you mentioned um, in, in that essay, you know, that looking at this dam, it's it's like a study of anticipation of, of, you know, these people having to deal with this future that's clear but unclear. And yeah, like you said, like waking up every day, not knowing if this dam is going to displace thousands of people or not. And it, yeah, it brings in, um, you, you mentioned, you know, the idea of sudba, of nizbjernist, like this fate, this unavoidability of it. So how you said you've just done kind of like preliminary research on it. So how, where, where can you go? Where can you take this weird anthropology and move it forward with, with um, this indigenous group? So there's a couple different directions. On the one hand, I've been looking at the work of Olga Utorgasheva, uh, who's a, a, a Veni anthropologist at uh, Manchester University. Mm -hmm. uh, and she's been writing, and, or she's written a book about how youth experience the future. And so I've, I've been looking at that and looking at her studies and trying to think how I can learn from that in ways of trying, trying to see if there's sort of specific ways that Venki are composing the future linguistically and culturally. My project, though, is not explicitly about Venki. I kind of want to try doing something a little bit different. Um, I'm, I've always been anxious about being an expert on and indigenous peoples. There's a long history of colonial relationship with anthropology. Right. I don't want to be the person who is the person you talk to to speak on their behalf. I am interested in amplifying indigenous voices. I am interested in learning from and listening to and trying to develop a practice that's more decolonial. And so the project's not about Evenki peoples. But again, it tries to listen to them and tries to attend to what they're saying about the world that they're in. It's also a move to get out of the habit of creating these cultural boundaries where there aren't necessarily, and so you've got lots of intermarriage going on. Uh, you've got lots of Evanki people, for example, who are you know, leading lives that really have very little to do with reindeer hunting or herding or even gathering berries in different seasons and things like that. And those people are no less Evanki for those right. practices, right? And so, you know, I, I, I don't want to foreground that. That said, you know, it, to some degree, it's there. It has to be there, and it's their homeland. And so how do you do that? You do that by attending to spaces, by expanding uh, attention beyond 
the sort of question of culture itself right. to place itself? What are these places of encounter in the world? So how are Evenki people living in Tura, which is the administrative center, or um, Nidium, which is you know uh, uh, down the river from Tura on the on the Nijanatunguska River? Mm-hmm. You know how are they living these villages? How are they reproducing social life? How do they feel about now? How do they feel about the future? How do they remember the past? So this project, we're trying to get funding to do research along the river and engage people in talking about their relationship to these places to try to get a sense, not just about how they anticipate the future, Mm -hmm. but how they experience the present and how they sort of construct life now. One of the ways that we're wanting to do that is through photography, uh, engaging people in sharing photographs that they've taken of these places. So, you know, looking at Tutanchani, for example, which is another village along the, the lower Tunguska River, um, sharing photographs, talking about these photographs, talking about how the photographs may chart different kinds of histories that are not necessarily visible from the outside. Um, but also engaging them as well as us in taking new photographs and using these photographs as ways of telling stories about place, Mm -hmm. uh, which hopefully will also allow people to start articulating what's potentially to be lost uh, if these places are flooded. This leans on the cultural historical work that we're doing right now, for example, Mm -hmm. on the aesthetics of flooding. Um, so what I mean by that is there is a set of images, a set of ideas, a set of feelings, a set of stories that most people in Russia are aware of when it comes to flooding. Right. For instance, they've read the work of Rasputin uh, on a Farewell to Meteora, mm-hmm. for example. Very, very widely read book. Even those who haven't read the book maybe saw the film or at least they've heard the story, right? And so what do you get from that story? You get these images of these people on this island uh, who are being forced to move and all these anxieties that emerge out of it. You get the very violent images of these buildings that are being burned down and the nostalgia and the sadness that's all tied into this. When uh, Rasputin wrote that, it was it was felt as being this inevitability. And mm-hmm. I, I think there's still a sense of that. And so if you think about inevitability, think about how that is tied to uh, the lack of agency and disempowerment yeah. um, and how the legacies of this kind of disempowerment can really grind people down. Um, and that's one of the things we're really wanting to attend to. Uh, so outside of Farewell to Matyota, there's all kinds of other histories of representation of mega projects uh, and of um, the sort of destruction that is associated with that, as well as the hope that's associated mm-hmm. with that. And this is actually a story that's really widely shared across the circumpolar north. We recently brought out Clint Westman, who's an anthropologist also from the University of Alberta, doing work in the Canadian oil sands. And he also reports, along with many others, uh, that Indigenous people are, are really caught in this colonial labyrinth. They for the most part, many people are, are resigned to industry coming and uh, fragmenting the environment in such a way that they're you know, undermining the capacity to lead traditional ways of life, whether that's hunting or fishing or whatever. And they're sort of resigned to the inevitability of that because it also provides jobs. Uh, and they don't have the kinds of autonomies one might need to be able to say, refuse it. 
right? So by looking at those colonial histories, we can learn from that, and you can do the same thing in in Siberia and say, okay, well, you know, so under state socialism, this is what that looked like, right? Under post uh, in the early post communist era, and as you sort of trace out and periodize that, you can also see the sort of um, repeating indifference towards the uh, economic uh, autonomy of indigenous peoples in the north. Soviet residues, I think, was also like a phrase that you used. Um, just this idea that it was something that they got used to like subsidized commodities and financed like infrastructures. Like they grew to rely on that, and not and the idea of not having that is very difficult to bear. Like yeah, yeah, exactly. But the way they became reliant on that was through forced settlement. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know they were when if we're talking about Evenkis right here, and this is sort of what, what my first book was about, right. and my my dissertation research as a graduate student was looking at how the Soviet Union created these landscapes. Uh, they cr- created these consolidated villages. Uh, it was part of this cultural shaping project uh, meant to produce good Soviet citizens, and it worked tremendously well. At the same time, they were committed in various ways to some kind of a multi-ethnic federative project. Mm-hmm. And so this is where the comparisons between North America and Russia actually really start to fall apart because you had you know a huge amount of government subsidy going to actually supporting certain kinds of approved indigenous forms of identity, mm-hmm. whether that was dance or performance and song, art and things like that as well. But at the end of the day, there was a, a lot of damage done to traditional forms of indige- indigenous economy, ways of relating to the land. Uh, you know, women were pulled off of the land, children were pulled off of the land, settled. And so they were brought up in these very sort of hybridized and, and, and complicated, with hybridized and complicated relationships both to the land that they continue to recognize as a homeland and as sort of as a site of uh, authentic identity and you know, which is not an unproblematic term, but also are committed to, you know, what we you know, often call sort of civilization. I'm throwing up some scare quotes around that term, <laughs> right? Um, and I, I use that partly because in Russia we get the, the use of that term, civilizatia, which tends to be associated with commodities, access to television, you know, now access to the Internet. Mm-hmm. These are the signs of civilization or civilization in the Russian Context, and I've heard lots of Avenki talk this way. I've heard lots of Sakha talk this way. Mm-hmm. So now people are like uh, entangled in this in ways, right? Um, and it's for the good and the bad. You know, it's 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 not about saying you know living a life with the internet is somehow a lesser life than right. you know being out herding reindeer or something like that. But it's a matter of sort of trying to look at how that shapes one's relationship to uh, an autonomous life. And ultimately, their relationship to sort of being able to construct a future that they, that they want for themselves and their children and for generations to come. You mentioned that, and I immediately kind of my mind went to, you know, the idea of, of the, the photography and analyzing that. And, and surely you'd be able to see, you know, this reflection of this identity that from the past and then to now, there's a very good chance you're going to be looking at photos that were taken on a cell phone that, yep. like, come from a completely different standpoint than something that was during before 1990 so that's fascinating what what's kind of ahead for you 
Well, I, I, that's one of the things I'm really excited to see is, you know, what kind of photographic practices have emerged. Um, and again, you know, the photography for me is a way of entering into a conversation with people. You know, to take a photograph is to encounter the world, is to engage with it. But it's also to story it, it's to narrativize it. Uh, you know, you take a photograph and immediately your friends gather around you and they're looking at it like, oh, that's so great, or oh my God, that's terrible, letting you retake that photograph or something <laughs> like that, right? Or they're, they're inspecting it and saying, wow, look, you know, we're all sitting around the fire, hanging out, and there's this weird face in the fire and everyone's looking at that and theorizing what that's about and yeah. stuff. And so to me, the liveliness that comes out of photographic encounters are, are I think, truly one of the... the amazing gifts to us as people who are committed, as researchers who are committed to trying to understand what it means to encounter the world for any given person within a cultural, historical, political, economic yeah. situation. So what's coming up for me? Um, in December, I'm moving to Novosibirsk, where I'll be working at in Akadiem Garadok. I'll be teaching uh, lectures, or I'll be leading a number of lectures and seminars for four months and then within that time I'll also be traveling hopefully to Evenkia, uh, hopefully to the Republic of Sakha. I've mm -hmm. got friends I need to visit in Yakutsk. If I could make it up to Alenyok, uh, Alenyokskiy Lus, which is in the far northwest of Republic of Sakha, bordering on Evenkia, mm -hmm. this is a zone that, that I really am interested in and haven't had a chance to get back to for a long time. So hopefully I'll be doing all that kind of work and laying the foundations for the ethnographic work. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, I don't have the time or the capacity to go there right now for doing those long periods of ethnography, but this will hopefully set the foundations to be able to do that. So you can see these con these projects, especially you know when you have family and, and teaching obligations, administrative obligations, they become really complicated and challenging to yeah. sort of carve out the time to do that. As a graduate student, you know, if, if you've got that flexibility to go and spend long periods of time places, I, I really recommend it because I, I miss being able to have done that as a, as a grad student. It's really, really good. It's hard to find and carve out that time. It's a bother when life gets in the way. Yes, it is. <laughs> but you roll with it, right? And yeah. you make the best of it. All right, well, best of luck in, you. in your research and, and your move. Uh, we'll keep an eye out for, you know, any future works that uh, you come out with. We're very excited to hear from you. And, you know, if you ever come back, feel free to come the back. The views expressed on this episode do not necessarily reflect those of the show or the University of Texas. Please visit SlavXRadio.com for more information. Yeah, thanks a lot. Thank you for listening. And, uh, the Slavic Connection is produced sure. by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Thank you. That was really good, guys. Cool. Excellent. Great. Thank, Thank you. So interesting.